0: I grew up in Hicksville, Ohio, which is a joke that never gets old. That is a proper noun, not an adjective. So, yeah, yes. Some people haven't heard that joke yet. Yeah, proper noun, it's a real place. My high school diploma gets the honor of saying Hicksville, Exempted School District, or whatever it was. And uh, it's actually a, f- a great place to, to live, and, um, but I, I grew up in small-town Ohio. That is an adjective. And I grew up in a predominantly conservative home. So we did not talk about LGBTQ people or even really understand that that was a thing uh, for most of my life especially as a child. It just wasn't, you know, it just wasn't, it didn't come up, and if it did, the few times that I feel like maybe it was hinted at, it was not discussed in a positive light, All right? So that, that's my upbringing. But to my parents' credit, I, it was instilled in me at a very young age to have a deep and in, in high value for loving people who are marginalized, who are hurting, who are lost. Um, I've shared my testimony many times. And my, my brother ended up making a series of difficult decisions and ended up in prison. And my parents loved him through that in a way that I'm not sure I could. And, it, and, and his life has never been the same since, in a good way. Like, so I learned from my parents how to love hurting uh, marginalized people. And I think that's what I've held on to more so than even some of the theology I was taught. Well, eventually, long story short, I became a pastor. I became a pastor in a denomination a part of the United Methodist Church where I didn't know at the time that this debate had been going on for, for quite a while, and not necessarily a, a debate around LGBTQ inclusion. It had been going on for a while. I wasn't aware of that, but here's what I was aware of. I was a little pastor in a small town not far from Hicksville in Defiance, Ohio, and my, one of my, what I realized very quickly was that as a pastor, Through the grace of God, people felt like I was safe enough to be honest with. Now, I had served in this church as their youth pastor for five years before I became their pastor. That's not a normal way it happens in the Methodist church, but that's how it happened for me. So I had been there for five years. I knew everyone in our congregation, but as soon as I became a pastor and I started preaching and I started discipling people, all of a sudden, a couple people felt safe enough to come to me and tell me that they, they came out to me. And and, and in every congregation since, I've learned this very simple lesson that it doesn't matter how small the congregation is or where it's at on the map. Rural Ohio, which was a, we had a debate last night how to pronounce that. And if you have a theory, I'd love to hear it later. But in rural Ohio or in the big city, it didn't matter. There are LGBTQ, you know. And if you can't think of anyone in your circle of friends who's LGBTQ, Well, we have to wrestle with that because they might not, you know, they, they're not ready to tell you, and that's okay. You know, like, no one needs to share when they're not ready. But as a pastor, people started coming, out, and I and so I had began this really interesting journey. I'd, it wasn't really on my radar. I just tried to love people where they were, et cetera, et cetera. But but I but I ended up going to uh, uh, Central Avenue Nine Methodist Church. They became our parent church. That's why we're called Central City Central Avenue. And I became the associate pastor. And they were having a conversation, typical of a university setting, because it's in Athens, Ohio, and they're having this whole conversation. And the general stance of the church was we are not of one mind we have people across the spectrum who view it differently and this was kind of where we sat and it was out of that philosophy that our church was planted by the way we are not of one mind a lot of people have different views on this what I want to do, share with to you today is is how my perspective on that has changed so a little bit of, of a precursor and this is my own interpretation I'm not an expert I am not. I do not identify as LGBTQ, um, so I'm, I'm coming to you from that perspective. But in the conversation that's happening in the church, like the big church, there's a couple of ways to respond to what it means to be inclusive of all people, um, or h- how to respond to LGBTQ. There, there is maybe some people, and, and I was kind of raised this way, where it's like it, there's just there's there aren't there aren't really LGBTQ people. I just want to pretend like they don't exist. All right, so that's a stance. I'm here to say to you, just without even spending any time there, that's not the right stance, and that's unhealthy, okay? It's not helpful to anyone. The, the other stance that's been popular, much more popular in the Christian tradition and has received uh, um, support in the past was this idea that, yes, there are people who have uh, homosexual tendencies, and through intense counseling, they can be changed what we would call conversion therapy. Once again, not gonna spend a lot of time on this because both traditionalist, what I would consider reasonable traditionalist, and uh, progressives would say, that's really harmful. And a lot of studies, you can just Google conversion therapy and you can read a lot of stories about how it's caused an immense amount of harm. And so generally speaking, we're like, okay, that's not on the table for discussion either, at least here. There are churches that would probably still have that as like a legitimate, you you can hold that opinion, we agree to disagree, not here. There are kind of two, and there are technical terms for this in the world of um, uh, LGBTQ ministry and inclusion. Um, I'm not gonna get into those technical terms, but there's this one view that I would say the majority of our community is at where we just believe it's an essential part of who you are. You're created by God, God loves you, And, um, you know, uh, uh, be you. Continue to follow Jesus as the way God created you to be. A more traditional or evangelical approach would be maybe it is an essential part of who you are. You can't change it, but God doesn't want you to act on it. And so you need to manage it through celibacy, through discipline, through structure. Okay, so that's, those were the, so when I said we we're at a church where it's like, okay, we don't, you know, we are not of one mind, um, those last two ones were really the bait. You know, it's like, well, okay, you are who you are, God loves you who you are, do you embrace it or do you, you know, uh, try to manage it in some way? And In the midst of that conversation, there was a transition that happened in my heart, in the midst of that debate. Um, And I thought long and hard how to explain that transition, and uh, I've come up with the most ridiculous illustration. (laughs) So I need you just to humor me for a little bit, because I think it'll be helpful in the end. Um, have you guys seen a meme like this? Can we put up that meme? Yeah, have you seen this? This is what shows up on my Facebook feeds. So this is all you need to know about me. We want less of this and more of this. All right. So less of this means like highly manicured yards. You put a lot of chemicals. You kill all of the bugs. You've got the perfect straight lines. You know that's how you know you've created this lawn that that is such. And then, but you're like, well, what? The, the opposite is like let's let's have biodiversity. Let's let's embrace like let, let wildflowers grow in your yard and embrace the diversity. And there's a debate, you know, and 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 I'll I'll show you my cards. Um, In our yard, we decided to have a little micro prairie. Now, that's a fancy word for saying I didn't mow part of my yard. (laughs) And I thought it was awesome. You know why? Because I'm from rural Ohio, and I grew up in fields. And so I had this little mini field that was positioned just right that when I stood in my kitchen and looked out the window, I was looking at a little field. It was a very small part. Some of you saw it. Uh, I've recently had to cut it down um, to make room for some, uh, we planted some trees and stuff, so I had rearranged our yard. But there was this micro prairie for about two years. Okay, so that's the context. This is where my mind is coming from. I want to now share with you a parable that I made up that may or may not be helpful, and you just got to live with it, okay? Here's the very simple parable. I want you to imagine a hypothetical small town. And there's a city council ruling that... There's a debate happening in this town on whether you're allowed to uh, let your yard get out of control and have micro-prairies. Now, if you've ever been a part of a neighborhood or a homeowners association, you know this is a real debate, right? Homeowner associations, I hear, are the devil, and people... (laughs) No, I've I've never been a part of one. I just heard stories. And like people will complain that you painted your siding the wrong color. I mean, it's a real thing. So I'm not making, this is believable. And so you say, there are people who are like, the yard should be perfectly cut, a carpet of grass. And there's others like, no, that's killing the bees. Give them wildflowers and let it grow and let it be natural. And people feel strongly about this because they talk to me about my micro prairie. (laughs) Like, well, you know, that's why you have so much mice in your house. And then I you know, I'm like, biodiversity, you know, let's, so there's a debate happening in this small town, do we go with option one, or do we go with option two, and the city council rules, we are not of one mind, which, if you interpret that, it means do what you want with your house, right, cut your grass if you want to, let it Embrace the wildness of the world and creation and all that it brings if you want to. Great. We are not of one mind. Well, let me tell you, that was not a sufficient ruling because people are still pissed. Oh, there's debate. People show up to city council meetings. They say nasty things about the natural growth people versus the manicured people. I mean, it's it's a whole argument. And neighbors start hating neighbors, and it escalates all the way to the point where the mayor ends up in his office with six people in front of him. And they're all mad. Three of them are on one side, three of them are on the other, and they're debating, and they're arguing, and they're like, this is how it should be, and I can't believe we're considering anything else, and blah, 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 and they're all mad about it. And then the mayor realizes something. In this metaphor, I am the mayor. The mayor realizes something. He looks at all of them, and he says, you all live in apartments. You don't even have lawns. And then one of the people says, well, my son has a lawn. (laughs) In the church, the vast amount of arguing and debate and the loudest voices in the room have often been people who live in fancy lofts without lawns, and maybe they're worried it's gonna impact their metro parks or something, it's gonna, whatever. So the mayor decides, well, why don't I get some homeowners in here and let's hear what they have to say. So here's what that looked like at Central City Church. From the very beginning as a community, we've had LGBTQ people a part of our tiny little church. From the very beginning, before we had weekly services, and they've led, You didn't know that. They've led, they've taught, they've served. Now, we have had LGBTQ people, some who have held an affirming view. Majority, I would say, who've held an affirming view. This is who God created them to be. And they're living it out. And then we've had others who've held a traditional view, who said, I'm committing to celibacy, this is what I believe God has called me to do, and they're living it out. And I made a statement about two or three years ago, whenever the United Methodist Church made a, a doubled down on their view uh, against uh, LGBTQ people, I made a statement that said, we have people who it actually impacts on both sides of the aisle, and I'm committing to be their pastor as they feel it needed. And that was my commitment. That's just a commitment I made to them. Now, in our community, community is a lot trickier than that. Those who've held an affirming view, I mean, have, I think, increasingly felt welcome here and have continued to serve. And, and, and those who've, who are LGBTQ who hold a traditional view have communicated to me that they have not felt safe here, that they felt if they shared that view with people in our community, that they would be scoffed at, made fun of, or looked down upon, and have opted to go to other churches. That's just the reality and and, and and honestly it's it's fine you know it's it, they are now in a space where they feel like they could be safe you know to, to share you know their 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 whole self as they understand it but when i made that commitment and i made it very i'm going to be their pastor on their terms um people were angry with me we lost a number of people you might not know but if you were with us during that time we had gone to two services and enough people left we had to go back to one and we probably sold you some other story You know, we didn't need to escalate it, but it was hard. I was called the devil at one point um, in a meeting with somebody because I made a commitment to love people right where they're at, and that's where we ended. So today, as we start this new series, your next week, you're going to hear from somebody who is gay, who has a master's of divinity, who has thought theologically about this, who's been a part of our community, and we're going to learn from him. I'm excited. You're going to hear from a few other people during the series as well, and I'm going to share my thoughts as well. And today, what I want to do is just offer a very simple roadmap moving forward on uh, how we can get there. And to do that, I'm going to spend some time in the book of Acts. This isn't going to answer all of our questions. It's not even going to be necessarily the foundation that we need, but it is, I think, going to be an adequate roadmap. So if you don't know, the book of Acts is a story of God's church unleashed on the world through the power of the Holy Spirit. The easiest way to think about the book of Acts or the acts, sometimes the Acts of the Apostles, but it's really the Acts of the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts tells a story if Jesus did all of these things in the Gospels, what would it look like if the disciples lived like Jesus under the power of the Holy Spirit? And so then the book of Acts kind of plays that out, and they do a lot of the same stuff. So it's God's Spirit unleashed in the world. And one of those stories very early in the story of the book of Acts is about this guy by the name of Philip. And Philip is known as the evangelist. And Philip, as part of the church is stationed in Jerusalem, which is the city of God. It's where the temple is. It's where the seat of the Jewish faith, which Christianity comes out of. And he is uh, goes out and he shares the good news with somebody. And that's a story I wanna share with you today as we develop a roadmap for this conversation. So uh, it's Acts chapter eight, starting with verse 26. The words will be on the screen. I'm gonna read through these with minimal commentary, and then I'm gonna share some thoughts. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Starts with God, speaks to Philip, tells him to do this. Go, which is God's favorite command, by the way. Go south to the road, the desert road, um, some translations, the wilderness road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Well, God loves to give commands, and um, when we listen, this happens. So he started out. I wish my story was that simple. So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch. An Ethiopian eunuch. here's, Here's the person he meets along the road. Uh, An Ethiopian eunuch means that he uh, is from Ethiopia. He's most likely a person of color. He happens to probably be also a Jew. And he's a eunuch, which means in their culture, for a variety of reasons, people would be emasculated uh, so that they were safer amongst women. So a lot of times in royal courts, someone would be emasculated in order so they could be a bodyguard for a princess or a queen. You know, then they don't have to worry about that that extremely strong person to take advantage of a royal, uh, uh, an important woman in the royal family. So this is an Ethiopian eunuch, and it says, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Kendike, which means queen of the Ethiopians. So that's who he is. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet, which we read earlier, by the way, fun fact. And the Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. I preached on this once and relates to uh, evangelism, and I love that commandment. He didn't say go and evangelize or go talk to the person. He said, just go put yourself awkwardly near them and see what God does, which is a, like a pretty good like, command when it comes to like, sharing your faith if you're, if you're into that. Like, you don't have to be very bold. You just like, put yourself in a position where it's possible. So he says, go and stand near him. And um, then Philip ran up to the chariot. And heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. All he had to do was get close enough to hear the guy. And he realized, this guy's reading Isaiah. And, he's, and the spirit told, um, and so then Philip says, do you understand what you were reading, Philip asked. And he says, how can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him, which I think rules regarding evangelism, rules regarding vampires should apply to evangelism, in my opinion. Like you need to be invited in. You, you know, don't push yourself onto people. So he invites them in, they sit. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth? And the eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. And as they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? The eunuch looks at Philip, who is now an ambassador of Jesus Christ, sharing the good news of who Jesus is and what he has to offer the world, and he says, What stands in the way of me being baptized? Here's what's happening. This eunuch had gone to Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem, following the Old Testament laws, the eunuch, as a sexual minority, would not be allowed into the temple. Deuteronomy 23.1 says that no one who's been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. That was what the script, that's what the Bible taught. That's what the Bible said. Not allowed. Not only allowed in the temple, but in the assembly of the Lord, and into real full membership into God's community. That's, that's what the eunuch was aware of. So when he asked Philip, what does it take to become baptized, there's some weight to that question. The assumption is I probably shouldn't be, because here's what happened with baptism that we sometimes miss. In our American culture, and especially around certain traditions, baptism is a commitment to follow Jesus. But, but in our tradition, and I think even in the early church, baptism replaced circumcision, which was an entrance into God's family. So you enter God's family through baptism. So what he's asking is, what would prevent me from being a full member of this new community? What is his answer? 38. And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. I just have a couple of brief thoughts to share with you. Scripture was clear. The Bible said it. I believe it. You've heard this, maybe. This is what we do with eunuchs. What we see in this story, in the example of Philip, is that the good news of Jesus Christ supersedes at least some of the Old Testament commands. That's what we see. You're like, well, that's, that's not what the Bible teaches. And my response is like, which part? Because it's a story. And the story didn't end in Deuteronomy. So what, what part are we talking about? Are you basing your life on, on the, the teachings of Deuteronomy? Are you basing your life on the teachings of Jesus? And you, you get to decide. I mean, we all get to decide, but I personally am here because I'm a follower of Jesus. And Philip, as a follower of Jesus, says, you know, to the answer, what prevents me from being baptized? His answer, which is unspoken, is nothing. Nothing. Do you you not understand how radical and scandalous God's grace is? That that that's why we call it good news. Because it's actually good news. Like, actually, like, like this is... People will be happy to hear this. That's what, do you know that's what good news means, right? That people will be like, I'm so glad you told me. If you're like, I'm sharing the good news, and you're like, I wish you wouldn't have said that, then it probably wasn't good news. The good news supersedes the rules. Here's another lesson, just very briefly. I think it's a good metaphor for what it means to leave behind the establishment built around structure and rules for those who are wandering in the wilderness. The the Ethiopian eunuch is a story of someone who left the church. It's a a story of the, the, the one sheep who left and the 99 who stayed behind. He went to Jerusalem to worship. We know he wouldn't have been fully embraced because of who he was. And he's now leaving. He's out in the wilderness wandering. These are theological words being used here. Not, not included in the story by accident. He's now wandering in the wilderness, and it's the Spirit of God who sends Philip to go find him, just like Jesus said in the parable of the 99 sheep. Go after the one, and you leave behind. The temple is appealing. I was thinking about this, and, you know, the majority of these profound moments where God met somebody and their life was changed for the better You know, these really beautiful moments like the story where Jesus meets a woman at the well or where he heals somebody, so many of them happen in wilderness experiences where they've already been rejected by religious authority. And and it's almost, and I haven't done a full study on this, so don't quote me on it, but it's almost like the closer Jesus got to the temple, the more conflict he ran into. It certainly was when the religious authorities were most violent. It ended with him you know, being crucified on a cross after teaching in the temple for a week. But also, it's where Jesus is most violent. It's where he overturns the table. So the closer he got to the temple and this powerful religious establishment, the more conflict and tension Jesus got into. But when he would reach out to people who had, in one way or another, been rejected by that community, you find this beautiful experience of God's grace and of God's healing. I think, once again, this is a story about what it means to leave the 99 for the one. In some ways, even just the parable that I, the stupid Lawn maintenance parable I share with you, the, the, the point is similar to what we see around activism. What does it mean to center their own voices? What does it mean to center the voices of those who are most impacted? Here's the thing. If you are a straight individual and you have strong feelings about LGBTQ inclusion, I'm not saying those feelings don't matter, but I am saying they matter a whole lot less because you know what? It don't impact you what the church decides, which leads me to another lesson I have here. This guy asked Philip, what would would keep me from being baptized? And here's what I think is one of the most powerful parts of the story. Philip doesn't hesitate. Think about this. What Philip's doing is semi-controversial. But you know what? If I was Philip, and I I like to make sure everything's in order, if I was Philip, here's some of the things I would want to do. I would say to this eunuch, well, let me go back and check with Peter, the leader of the church. There should probably be a church vote on this. Do we let eunuchs in? You know, there needs to be some sort of debate or some sort of, you know. I mean, he, didn't even, he wasn't even worried that a eunuch couldn't get circumcised, which they were still debating in the church at this point. No. He says, what, what prevents me from being baptized? And he's like... Stop the chariot. Let's get you baptized right here. No hesitation. Oh, the authority that comes from the good news, do not overlook it. It is greater than any other authority in the world. And you, Every authority in the world, your, your pastor, your church board, our bishop, everyone's Leveling, you know, everyone wants their piece of the authority, but the good news trumps it all. The good news says, no, you're in. You're accepted. You're included. Over the next couple of weeks, um, this is just meant to be a conversation starter. This is what we're thinking. This is some of my thoughts. This is a little bit of our journey. Um, we started as a moderate church and, and through conversation realized that uh, that it didn't really—it doesn't really make sense. It's not—it doesn't really fit who we are and, and who our community is. And I've been on a journey uh, of learning and growing in so many ways, and I know many of you have as well. So uh, this is where we are now. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to hear uh, from a couple of different people, and, and um, I'm going to preach again in two weeks as we look at some of the, what some of the problem passages in Scripture around LGBTQ inclusion but we've created a safe space with our discussion group for you to wrestle with it yourself. Uh, You don't need to just sit and listen. You can talk. You can join that discussion group. Delaney is here. Wave your hand, Delaney. She's our small group coordinator. She'll be leading the Holy Love discussion group. You can sign up for it, and um, we would love uh, to have you. Um, So uh, with that, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to invite you to take um, uh, communion. So let us pray. God, we come before you and we ask that you would speak to us, uh, continue to speak to us, that you would open up our hearts and understand just how great your love is and just how powerful this good news is. That we are not bound by anything than your great love for others. And that we would not hesitate to share that good news with others, that they too are loved, that they too are accepted, and that there is a place for them in your family, whoever they are. Help us to be that to the world. Amen. I would be lying to you if I didn't tell you that the last uh, I was on vacation for a couple weeks and we went on a cruise, but then outside of the cruise, I've been uh, handling a number of um, things that are really important to me that have been difficult. And I feel like I've experienced the full I've really had to sit with my own brokenness over the last couple of weeks and and what it means to be a human, and what it means to, to wrestle. I don't know if you've ever been discouraged or not, but I've, I've become very much aware of brokenness. And so as I was preparing communion and thinking about how we follow a God who has been broken for us, so much so that he invites us to, to eat bread and to drink juice as a symbol of God's brokenness, that God, that Jesus would, his body would be broken for us and his blood spilled for us, that he would take on the full religious establishment of, 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 that we see in the stories of the Gospels, even to the point of, of hanging on a cross. Um, and in all of that, he would continue to love, to forgive, and then to rise again and invite us into that journey of brokenness and the resurrection that happens afterwards. So today, as I invite you to come and take communion, I'm sitting, uh, I'm inviting you to join the body of Christ, which is often broken for the world and filled with broken people. Um, God, become come before you and we ask uh, that your Holy Spirit would fall on these elements of bread and juice, that you would make them be for us the very body and blood of Christ, that we might be the body of Christ. It's in your name we pray, through the power of the Holy Spirit, amen.